Welcome to Bad Reads with Simon and Kira. This is a podcast all about the experience of reading. Today's episode, we'll be talking about long books and short books. So you know that thing when you finish a book and you have that kind of moment where you stare into the distance just for a second, you have a sort of moment of peace and then you put it down to one side and you think, ah, what am I going to read next? (laughs) And what I do, I've realised, not proud of this, is I go to my Kindle and I open up my folder of books still to read and I look down the list of them all and I look at which one is the shortest (laughs) and I think, yes, I'll read that one. And I suppose what I wanted to ask you to begin with is, am I the only one that does this? (laughs) I think reading on a Kindle has this mechanism built into it where it closes one book and then it's like, and here's the store and here's your library. So there's possibly a bit more of an encouragement to start thinking about the next book immediately. Because normally I finish a book and I'm like, phew, like mission accomplished, pat on the back. I have... I have completed a book and I don't want to tarnish that wonderful moment (laughs) with having to think about starting something new. But to your point about the length of books, absolutely. I've got a lot of books on my list to read or which I've even started reading and then put aside for the time being, which is slightly longer. And then I buy new books, which are in this wonderful sweet spot of under 300 pages. For me, that's like, if a book is around the 250, I think it's actually 256 pages as they normally are, that is the absolute dream. I love those books. So yeah, I get my shopping, book shopping habits and book reading habits. Length definitely plays a part. It's weird, actually, now I think about this, that bookshops don't have a section of short books and a section of long books. And I could just go, you know what? Maybe another day I'll go to the long book section. <laughs> well, now I want to find out whether there are any indies, indie bookshops in the UK that have a short books table or section. If they don't, and any booksellers are listening, <laughs> please give us one. <laughs> we, at least two people, well, actually Simon reads his Kindle, so maybe not, <laughs> but at least one person <laughs> would be a loyal customer of that section, but I don't think we're the only ones. Like, we surely can't be. This is one of those things that comes up when you talk to people about reading, isn't it? Like you recommend someone a book and then they see the size of it and they think, oh, you see their face fall. You say, this is great. And then they look at it. You just think, oh yeah, sure. I'll read that. Yep. <laughs> at some point in the distant future, actually, yeah, a friend recommended and then went the next level. He actually lent me his copy of Shantaram. And I had his copy on my shelf for, I'm going to guess three years. It was possibly longer than that until the moment when he said, do you have my copy of Shantaram? And I said, yes. (laughs) And he said, have you read it yet? And I said, no. And then he said, can I have it back now? And I returned it to him having not read it or actually even cracked it open because it was too much. The thing is, well, if you lend someone a long book, you have to give it a long time before you ask for it back because it's quite possible they've been reading it the whole time. (laughs) So the weird thing is, even when I'm reading a book that I enjoy, I'm still happy for it to be over. I'm still happy for it to be short, which seems really weird because you think if it's something that I'm enjoying, Mm -hmm. I'd want more of it. But I don't think I've ever read a book and thought, oh, I really wish this was longer. Yeah. So my dance teacher used to have this saying. She used to tell us, leave them wanting more. Mm. It's a very showbizy kind of thing to say. And it wasn't at all relevant to us because we didn't do the choreography. <laughs> she did. So <laughs> leave them wanting more was kind of her own advice. But it really stuck with me. And I notice it in TV, especially the shows that are really compulsive that people binge watch and love and talk about are the ones where the episodes end, you know, on a cliffhanger, where people really want to know what else is going to come. And I think, obviously, that's, that isn't the only way to produce a bit of culture, but it, there's something really satisfying about that. Well, actually, no, it's maybe it's a mix of both. There's part that's really not satisfying because you want some kind of closure, but it's nicer to get to that point and think, oh, I wonder what happened and 
I wonder what would have happened if they had developed it further or if mm. we spent longer with this character. And that's a really nice experience, I think, to spend time wondering. It gives you more of a role as a reader, I guess. You spend time with your imagination rather than getting to the end and thinking, Jesus, I'm glad that's over. <laughs> I don't want to spend any more time with those characters. That's an interesting point, actually, because like the, the American office, say, which has how many seasons it has nine ten seasons the episodes are 20 minutes long so they're sort of bite-sized chunks of episode mm. whereas some other shows that have you know feature length episodes it's very easy to become fatigued watching those episodes even if the total number yeah. of episodes or even the total running time of all the episodes is shorter yeah definitely i think it requires well both require a good editing job to get them down to that length but to have a longer show or a longer film and not notice the time does require a lot of skill to keep that pace up. Mm. And I think the same is often true in books. With long books, often you get to a point where you think, oh, this, could have, this could have ended here. And then maybe sometimes after that point, you get into another really good patch. I find that tends to increase as the mm. book gets past a certain length. Thinking about nonfiction and very practical books for a moment. If you have a book that has loads and loads of examples, it just kind of fatigues you as a reader. You know, you get to a point where enough examples help to give you a rich understanding of what they're talking about. Too many examples, and yeah, okay, I've got it, you know, and it feels patronizing. You just want them to move on, which is obviously a really hard point to find <laughs> as a writer and as an editor, but I think you get that in a lot of different genres of both non-fiction and fiction, where the reader just starts to get fatigued by whether it is examples or whether it's dramatic points or descriptions. Your non-fiction point there really made me think of Black Swan and Anti-Fragile and Skin in the Game, I think is the other one, right. which are three books, all of which you can sort of sum them up in one sentence. <laughs> But And he's just sort of found more and more and more examples and ways of expressing that idea. Oh, and another thing, it's relevant <laughs> to this as well. And it's just one of those after another for like 400 pages. It's kind of like the reading equivalent of having the giant popcorn all to yourself. <laughs> yes, yes. No matter how much I like the popcorn, I still, when I'm three quarters of the way full, I'm yeah. feeling a bit queasy. <laughs> I wish I got the small one. I think on the flip side of that, though... There are lots of, um, we've talked before about service Blinkist and other things which really condense mm. books down. And I think that, you know, again, we're, we're talking about the sweet spot, but that's too little. You get just the rough idea of a book, but you don't actually get, for me at least, you don't get quite enough to figure out how you could implement it. You don't get enough of a lasting impression. I think there's something about the duration of thought, certainly when it comes to nonfiction, if you just read the summary, or hear a summary, or read the Wikipedia page for it, you can skim it in about 20 seconds, and the thought goes in and then goes out again. Mm. But there is something about sitting with an idea for a period that makes it resonate more than if you just hear the idea. And I think maybe too, there is an element of you get the author's voice coming across, and if they're an mm. expert in their field, and they're writing in an encouraging way, you almost develop a kind of relationship with them. And so for those kind of practical, more business or self-help books, you sort of put the work in because you feel like you owe it to them, almost. There's a kind of contract going on. You can feel like the author becomes your friend, actually, mm. so it's like hanging out with them. I've realised I would much rather read a short book by a particular writer that I like, and then go and find another one of their books and read that one as well, than I would read a book twice the length or as long as both of those books but in one book well that brings me i was thinking about some of the books that are really long that we have now were actually first published as serializations yeah so thinking about novels like charles dickens's bleak house yeah and that i think i've read the book i enjoyed it i read it because i was studying it so i had to read it Although actually at the time, I didn't read all of it because I was meant to do it in a week. And who on earth can read Bleak House <laughs> in a week while also being a student and having very important drinking to do? Um, but but I thought actually as a serialization, that would be great, right? Just getting these snippets and then you want more and you have time to let everything kind of sit and percolate rather than this 
absolute weight of everything all at once. I remember reading Bleak House for the same reason that you did. But unlike you, we were set it to read in advance the next term and read it over the Christmas holidays. And I remember (laughs) just (laughs) that whole Christmas holidays just feeling like one long trudge through Bleak House. (laughs) And I remember when I read Great Expectations and Hard Times as well, both of those, it just felt like years of my life were spent reading those books. I would just go, you know, <laughs> I'd, go, I'd get into bed and it would be sitting on my bedside table. And I'd pick it up and read it. And it was just there for, I mean, it must have been months on end. It was there night after night. <laughs> well, maybe the serialization principle wouldn't have helped for you then because it really would have been years. I don't know. I think there is something about serializations though. And I find it strange that that's not something that we have anymore. Like it feels like actually splitting something down into parts like that would be quite appealing to modern audience. Yeah, you would really think so. And it's something that people tend to do as a bit of publicity. You serialize a small bit of content. Or I mean, they call it serialization often, but it's often a kind of adaptation. Or it's an extract usually, isn't it? Yeah, but it would be... That would be quite an enjoyable thing to see with a lot of books. This seems to inevitably come up every episode. My, I read The New Yorker. Put my, I put myself through this week after week. Um, and that, of course, has the problem that every article in it is about 2,000 words longer than yeah. you want it to be. After you've turned over the eighth page in this article and it's still going, <laughs> often I just think, oh, I wish this had ended. And a weird thing about that as well is I often I'm surprised when they do end And I find myself thinking, why did you pick there to end? You could have ended (laughs) at any point. Even magazines like that, these sort of, I don't know, if you want to call them, sounds pretentious, but like high quality magazines or like high Mm -hmm. brow magazines, if you want to even go that far. None of them serialize fiction or nonfiction. Yeah. And the New Yorker would be an obvious place Mm. for that, wouldn't it? Yeah. And it feels like the sort of magazines that we used to have in the UK and the 19th century or 20th century? 19th century, I think, like the Strand that had serializations in them, which were probably similar time to when the New Yorker started. But all the UK ones seem to have died out. Um, Whereas the American ones, there's the New Yorker and Atlantic and Harper's, they're all still running. They've somehow managed to hang on in a way that ours haven't. Yeah, the, the magazine culture is definitely a slightly different thing. And the kind of how you conceive of literary culture... It's pretty different between the UK and the States. Yeah. But I guess just thinking about it, the serialization might have slightly dropped off just because circulation has dropped off of magazines and newspapers. Well, fiction has largely dropped out of magazines as well. But they bring it back to books. I have found myself recently reading quite a lot of non-fiction books, which are a collection of essays that were published in magazines originally. Uh, so the last time I think we spoke... I was reading the Empathy Exams, which was a collection of articles that had been in magazines. I'm now reading a book by Joel Golby called Brilliant, 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 Five Brilliance. <laughs> um, I haven't yet found out why it's called that. I'm sure that'll come at some point. But he's a journalist who writes in The Guardian and other places. And I, some of these articles, are, or some of these chapters, I think, are specifically for the book, but some of them certainly are adapted from magazines. And it's a sort of anti-serialization in that sense. It's collecting these non-fiction things that have appeared organically over many years and then stitching them together and often trying to draw some narrative in them. I can see that some of them have been edited to put in links between them. Yeah, we're in the opposite. Maybe it's as kind of online culture is becomes more and more fragmented. What we look for in our book culture is something more cohesive and something that tries to give a, a feeling of narrative whole. I think we quite like completion as well. Like Calvin and Hobbes, as another example, is something where mm. originally you'd always read it in the newspaper, but I've never read it in the oh. newspaper. I've never had a newspaper that's run it. I've only ever had collections of it, or yeah. most recently, the complete collection. But there's maybe there's something about size of books here as well, um, around the way they break up into chunks. Because I, I mean, it's not this is a long book, but I recently read Adam Kay's book, This Is Gonna Hurt, which is a sort of comedy diary really about his time as a doctor and um, consultant. It's basically a series of short diary entries. Some of them are only Mm. less than a page long. And I heard him interviewed in a podcast and he said 
one of the reasons he wrote it like that was so that you'd think, oh, I'll just read one more. And before you know mm-hmm. it, you've read a dozen. Whereas it, had it been like a 30-page chapter, you might think, oh, I'll, yep. I'll read that tomorrow. It's an interesting kind of trick of getting you into that. And I wonder if that kind of speaks to how he feels as a reader, you know, whether he needs that way to get into books. I think for me, I know essays aren't a particularly popular format in the UK, but I think actually a lot of people do enjoy reading that style. They just get maybe put off by the title of it. But I've read a couple of anthologies recently published by Daunt Books, and they have a similar effect to them. So they're collections of lots of different writers. The first one that they did was all about swimming at the Kenwood Ladies Pond on Hampstead Heath. And it was a really magical collection of different authors who have swum in the pond about their experiences and the kind of magic of being there. And they each take a different angle. Some of them go kind of autobiographical and talk about swimming elsewhere. Some of them are about the lovely collective experience or admiring the women who have been swimming day in, day out for decades. And don't publish one on food called In the Kitchen. And I'm just, I skipped that one, but I'm reading the third one, which is called In the Garden. Some of the essays are a bit hit and miss, or they might not be to everybody's tastes, but you get a really fun switch between different voices. And some of them are, yeah, just a couple of pages long. So you think, it's not a big commitment. I can sit down and I could read for 10 minutes if I wanted to, and then put that down and do something else, which is nice. That feeling that you can dip into reading rather than it being like, right, buckle up, it's reading time. Yeah, and you've also got that thing that if you do read one and you don't think much of the writer, you can always think, well, that's over now. And the next one is a new start. Maybe I'll like this writer more. (laughs) Sometimes there can be a feeling of like, some of them feel a bit like articles that have been adapted. It's interesting that although I've found that I really like reading collections of articles, most of the collections I read are one author's collected works. But I did get into this collection, shows my sort of over the Atlantic preferences, I suppose, all this American stuff I'm reading. I think it was called The Best American Nonfiction Articles. Each year they pick a different editor to go through and select about a dozen articles that have been published in all different magazines. I mean, unlike those ones you described there, there isn't a single theme uniting them all. But you do get this alternating authors, all with different voices. And so you think, ah, I wonder what this next one's going to be like. You never really know what's going to come next. But weirdly, although I really like reading non-fiction articles, I've not really managed to get into reading collections of short stories. Well, I mean, I think the first kind of maybe most obvious point is just that it's not a format that our current culture gives much credence to, at least popular culture. You know, I wouldn't say that there are many short story collections that everyone has been talking about and reading. It just doesn't happen in the way it does with novels or nonfiction. It's weird, isn't it? Because you'd think, given how much we like short things, that they would be the natural form. Finally, the ultimate short story that's really left you wanting more. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, you should, like, Raymond Carver, I think, is, yeah, a lot of people talk about him as the master of short stories. Start there, see how you feel. But yeah, maybe this should be one of our reading goals, dig into more short fiction. I read Cathedral a few years ago, which was good. I thought it was good. It's a funny thing with short stories, isn't it, where I feel like they're not just like a short novel. A novel I read a while back that was very short, and probably as short as a long short story, it's called The End We Start From by Megan Hunter. And it's sort of set in this like post-apocalyptic world. Something strange has happened. They don't really get into the details of what. None of the characters have names. And they're just sort of describing this process of surviving. And it's written in extremely short paragraphs. Almost every sentence is its own paragraph. And there's big paragraph breaks as well. And it just sort of, it's almost fragmentary. You get these like snapshots of what's going on. But it's, it's kind of beautifully written. It's really compelling. After I read it, I think I went through and had a look at actually how long it was. And I think it was about 25,000, 30,000 words. So really, really at the short mm. end. Novella territory. Yes. I mean, novella is what it was, I think. That felt like a short novel, like there was something complete about it. Whereas a lot of short stories, they're less like a short novella or a, they're more like a snapshot of a moment or a feeling. 
um, maybe that experience isn't something that we're used to or that we're crying out for as a culture and that's why maybe we don't reach for those in the same way. And I guess with short stories, especially on the very shorter end, they're often written in a way that's very much at odds with our, do you want to call it instant gratification culture, but our tendency to expect gratification of a certain kind. A lot of these stories are super sparse. You might not find out the protagonist or narrator's name. You don't find out much about their life beyond what's happening in that day. I'm generalizing massively about short stories, but these are kind of common features. Yeah. You know, even in some of our TV adverts, you feel like you get <laughs> more of a, a sense of a character or a narrative arc than you do in some short stories. And I guess there's like there's a feeling of discomfort that comes from some of that reading. And maybe that's what is nice about the experience, but I guess would be difficult as a regular, if that was all your reading was. Yeah, I guess you just have to kind of sit with it or be comfortable filling in the gaps. Yeah, it's a different artistic experience, isn't it? Actually, now you've said that, it's made me think that short stories are perhaps more analogous to like short films, um, like film festival type films, whereas TV shows are actually like short films, like as in films of short in duration. They have the same features. And I wonder if there's not exactly a missing literary form there. Although perhaps that's what a serialised novel would be. That would fit the TV show, which we don't really have. Because they tend to feature a bit more of that repetition that you get from TV shows. When they don't necessarily pick up exactly where they left off. That's definitely, I think, a bit more of a feature of Victorian novels than some now. With that serial break, you get a shift to character or a shift to a new location. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like a lot of things I'm saying are massive generalizations about <laughs> the forms. <laughs> but yeah, it's curious that we both love short books, but despite having said, oh yeah, short stories are great, I also haven't read any for a really long time. Well, it could be that what we're describing is something that we spot in that form that has put us off from looking into it more. So it's not that all of them do it, it's that we we fear many of them have and we've experienced the number that have. Yes, and yeah, and you don't want to use up your valuable allotted reading time with something that you're not necessarily sure will deliver. Do you get endorphins from reading? I reckon you do. Yeah, so you want that kind of endorphin hit, which you suspect that you will get if you go to a particular genre, yeah. kind of length of book. And yeah, if, you, if we've had that experience with a very short story of not getting satisfaction, being left bewildered, <laughs> like we have some work to do, or conversely from reading a very long novel and just getting the sense of exhaustion, then it kind of puts you off trying again. There is a short story every week in The New Yorker. I often read them. I don't or Sometimes I start and then skip them. The ones in The New Yorker are perhaps a little bit more narrative, <laughs> partly because they're quite long, I suppose. I was going to say, I don't trust their definition of <laughs> short. <laughs> Only 20 pages? <laughs> Occasionally you get a really short one. But what I find puts me off about them, and this is perhaps that says something about the creative arts industry and who can afford to do it, and also perhaps who reads The New Yorker, I've spotted a series of tropes that crop up time and time again. And so many of them are about younger millennials who essentially are living off their parents' money one way or another, or who are struggling to stand up on their own and yet are actually quite financially secure. Or people that have been in academia for a long time and struggling to get tenure. And then a whole host of them as well are about people whose parents have recently died. I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously there's something, there's something going on here about the sort of person who, who, has a position of privilege such that they can write stories for the New Yorker because um, it's a hugely competitive industry and it's very difficult to get into and all those sorts of things. And often they're really beautifully written, so it's, this is no criticism of the way they're written. There's definitely, I feel, a bit of fatigue with those kinds of narratives. I don't really want to read <laughs> something which feels like it mimics my experience very closely. If it's a kind of snapshot vignette, um, if, if it's a character that seems very like me, but they have an interesting narrative arc and go on adventures, blah, 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 fine. But if they're just like me and it's like, yeah, here's what happens in a normal boring day, I don't really feel like I need that reflected back at me. Yeah, it's almost too mundane, isn't it? It's too... <laughs> I've, I've already lived this. I don't want to spend my time reading about it as well. One thing I feel about very long books, 
there's that old joke, isn't there, of, I can't remember who said it, it's probably apocryphal, this letter would be shorter, but I ran out of time. Like, it takes more work to write more concisely. And I can't help thinking sometimes about really long books. <sighs> These should have had another edit. Is it because the writer became too successful and the editor was scared to cut their work? Um, yeah, I'm, well, I'm always going to agree with you <laughs> on um, <laughs> books needing more editing if they're long. Because <laughs> um, I just go in with my machete to work. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've asked a hairdresser there, haven't I, if I need a haircut? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the answer is always yes. But, well, the, yeah, the answer isn't always yes, but my answer is, I guess, always going to be that way. But I think, so I was looking up, just get into some stats now. And I think you have read the third longest book written in the English language. Oh, wow. Which is Clarissa. <laughs> Samuel Richardson's Clarissa. Oh, my at God. 950,000 words. I haven't Eesh. read all of it, but <laughs> I... You know what? This was, again, at university. And my supervisor at the time, I was writing about... Samuel Richardson, I'd written about Pamela and I'd written about the parody of Pamela that is called Shamla. <laughs> and there's another parody of Pamela called Joseph Andrews. But even that, like, that's 140,000 words long, which in my mind, too long. that's two novels. <laughs> A good length novel is like 70,000 to 80,000 words. Anyway, my supervisor at the time just said, oh, why don't you read Clarissa? And I was like, okay, cool. And I remember getting it and reading it. And it took an age and like, right, thank God that's done. And then it turned out that was only the first volume. And there was like five volumes of it. <laughs> I don't know if you've read it or even flicked through it. But no, it just not. goes on and on and on. <laughs> just nothing happens for, like, I was going to say for pages at a time, but nothing happens for hundreds of pages at a time. <laughs> Well, I'd like to say that at some point I would give a book of that length a try, but um, I'm, yeah, <laughs> I don't think it's going to happen. But I felt quite cheated by my supervisor there. It's one of a few occasions when I felt like my supervisors at university were not being entirely good faith when he said, oh, why don't you have a look at Clarissa? I can tell you why not to have a look at Clarissa, because a million <laughs> words long. Yeah, that should have come with a disclaimer. If you were at all good faith about it, you would introduce that with, there is another book beyond Pamela, which takes it even further, but it is extremely long. It might be worth digging into it a little bit. Yes, digging in. That's the language you need. Mm. Not take a look at. Definitely yeah. not. Like, use like some kind of yeah. archaeological terminology. Yes. <laughs> Because you will spend a long time brushing off yeah. fragments <laughs> that mean nothing, tossing them aside in your quest for meaning. And actually getting very little from it as well. It's not as if every section is uniquely crafted and different from the others. Like, I remember reading Ulysses, which is a long book as well. But at least Ulysses is broken into different sections that have conceits about them. And you do get something different from the different sections. But Clarissa is just the same thing over and over again for i'm not sure we've mentioned this for a million words <laughs> so have you read um proust's remembrance of things past no i haven't that holds the guinness record for the longest novel what i have read is alan de Botton's book about proust which I almost recommend more than Proust, I think, because I got it's actually not very thick, but it sort of tells you about Proust without having to dig into it itself. <laughs> the Blagger's Guide, essentially. You said Clarissa is the third longest book. Proust is the longest, is it? What's the what's the second? Okay, so it depends if you're looking just at the English language or if we're looking at all languages. The longest book, twenty-two thousand four hundred pages. Oh my god! It's in Tamil. It's a novel uh, completed in July 2020. Oh, so it's new as well. Called Ven Murasu in 26 volumes. See, what's interesting about this is... Yeah. Is that really one book if it's in 26 volumes? Like, is, is this not a little bit like calling Lord of the Rings one book? Yeah, and some people do count on that basis. So, for instance, Carl Ovet Nausgaard's My Struggle is a million words, but across six volumes. Does that count? as a novel. I've read one of them, and I wouldn't say I've read a sixth of the novel. 
I would say I read the first novel in a series. And you really get into this with Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which we spoke about last time, I think, and the point that Douglas Adams was so bad at deadlines that his editor came and took it off him and published the first bit as the first novel. And then he wrote the second one and it carries immediately on because it's literally the next chapter that he wrote. Generally, you even buy them in the collected works. You buy Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy as one book of, what is it, a trilogy in five parts, as they say. But I still think of that as five short books. I don't think of it as one long book. Yeah, I agree. Let's like give ourselves, cut ourselves some slack. If we read a book, we're reading the book. And that's weird as well, actually, because the completed collection of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is very big. That's a, you know, you spot that on the bookshelf. But when I read that, I considered it five books and I didn't feel the length of that. I felt that I was getting through those, even though I wasn't turning over the final page and putting it down. Even though you're reading a in a massive chunk. That's interesting. Yeah, it tricked me. <laughs> but in a good way. Yeah, exactly. It pulled it off. Which, yeah, so I think, I think I'm going to accuse this Tamil book of cheating. <laughs> <laughs> book series. Yes. I mean, 26 is long in any series though, isn't it? Yeah, that's a lot of books. Um, do you know what the longest book you've read is? Well, I think it might be Bleak House at 960 pages. That's pretty big. That's getting scarily close to a thousand, isn't it? Scarily close. Yeah. I mean, when the spine cracks in multiple places, <laughs> you're in a chunky, chunky book territory. Uh, Middle March, not that far behind that. 880 pages. Yeah, I mean, The Lord of the Rings would be the next biggest one, but we've established that's three books. Doesn't count. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, Yeah, so that's it. My university days account probably for my longest reading, although I'm just going to check the length of the luminaries. Oh, that's a big one as well, isn't it? Ooh, 848 pages. Okay, just still shy of middle March, but I gave myself a good old pat on the back when I finished that one. You're categorizing the books in pages, which I suppose is what they look like, but it depends on font size as well, because I bet that Bleak House font is probably quite small. That's true, yeah. I'm going on most easily available data. But yeah. So I found myself extracting the books from my Kindle and word counting them in Word to get a sense of the actual number of words. So I read <laughs> The Knicks a few years ago. I remember finding it strange because I thought it was good and I found it long. Um, and that was 210,000 words. If you've seen that on, on the shelf, that's a, that must be six or 700 pages, I reckon. 700 pages, The Knicks. And it's probably one of the few books of that length that it didn't feel too long when I was reading it. I felt like, oh, I'm okay with this, actually. But yeah, they're definitely some of those longer books. So like the Knausgaard's A Death in the Family, which is the first book in his series. I think that one was about 500 pages long. And that I enjoyed, and I didn't really get the sense of it being too long. But I equally didn't come to the end of it and think, oh, great, what I want now is five more. <laughs> <laughs> And I never have. I've thought, like, that's interesting. I like that. And now I'm going to leave it alone. Not least because you start reading about, like, given there are kind of autobiographical novels, and there's a fine line between them. And as he started to move on from his childhood and document what was happening in his daily life, you know, I was reading that it kind of took a, a toll on his wife and her mental health. And that's a point at which it gets slightly uncomfortable. <laughs> Yeah, I read the first one, I think on your recommendation, actually. I don't think I'd heard of him when you mentioned him to me, and then I started seeing him everywhere. Mm. And similarly, I read the first one and found it quite emotionally overwhelming, I think, quite sort of emotionally exhausting. Yeah. And thought to myself, that was really good, but I don't want any more. Yeah. The sort of feeling that I get after eating Christmas dinner, I guess. (laughs) I liked that, but I don't want to eat another one right now. Yes. I had a similar feeling... Um, forgive me if we've spoken about Gone with the Wind before, but reading that, that's another mega book. When I got to the end of it, and I'm just going to come back to my giant popcorn metaphor, (laughs) worked worked so well, I felt slightly sick, like I'd had just a bit too much. In fact, like, in terms of emotional overload, I just started crying and I couldn't (laughs) stop crying. And I had to get in the shower just to kind of wash the book off me, out of my system. Yeah, for numerous reasons, both good and bad, I think I did end up really connecting with the characters, even though in many ways they're quite awful. And in many ways, it's also a difficult 
book to read, you know, a, a book that long after the Civil War and the end of slavery was glorifying that time and glorifying Southern slave owners. Oh, there's a lot. Having that book in your system for a really long time, you need some kind of cleansing after it, I think, to let it go and move on. I know very little about it, actually. I've not seen the film either. I think all I know about it is that Trump thinks the film is very good. And <laughs> what a surprise, <laughs> turns out, as you say, to be glorifying slavery. So Yeah, well, I mean, the curious thing about the writing of that is, you know, I think people expect, if you don't know much about it, you would expect it, it to have been written contemporaneously with the Civil War or immediately in the aftermath, and it's not. It was written quite a long time after that. It was originally published in 1936, so we're talking about, yeah, 20th century. Oh, wow, so sort of Hitler time. Yes, yeah, and suddenly the kind of nostalgia, wonderful antebellum glow, not that it would have been excusable or that we would read that comfortably at any time, but written in the 30s um, raises more questions. Speaking of horrible right-wing books, didn't you say once before that you'd read... <laughs> Um, the Fountainhead. <laughs> yes, it's a big book. It's not as big as Atlas Shrugged. Right. Okay. That's one of the longest novels ever written, I think. I'm very into my stats right now. Eleven hundred and sixty-eight pages in Atlas Shrugged. Oh no! Oh. I don't want four digits of pages. <laughs> not Vain Rand. Um, and the Fountainhead. Yeah, it wasn't. It, you know, not a patch on that, so only 753. See, that's still a lot of pages. That's a lot of pages. That's still a chunk I of your life. what I'm finding is the longest books I've read have probably all been about 10 years ago, and I was looking through my recent reads, one of my favourites, 208 pages. Yeah. Oh, that's oh, nice. Great. That was Tales from the Cafe Before the Coffee Gets Cold which I'd very much recommend. And that is actually, it is a novel, novella, but it's told in kind of vignettes set in the same cafe. Lovely reading experience. And then I've been reading a bit of crime fiction, my Agatha Christie's, and I just finished a, I was going to say it's a new book. It's been recently published in English, recently translated, called The Decagon House Murders by Yukito Ayatsuji. And it apparently in the 80s inspired or like revitalized Japanese crime writing. It very much is a kind of puzzle mystery. It's of that genre and it pays a lot of homage to Agatha Christie and to lots of other crime writers. All of the characters are part of a mystery writing club and they each have these names taken from crime writers around the world. So there's a character who's called Agatha and there's an Ellery and a car and yeah so it, it's really nicely kind of referential and a fun kind of puzzle to solve. So as well as being a decent length I think that was in the 300 kind of territory. It was also very compulsive reading. But yeah I think it's funny because I was expecting that everything I'd read recently would have been shorter and that all the books I gave up on temporarily would have been longer. And there's definitely a bit of a trend towards that, but not not exclusively. When we say about short books, I wonder if sometimes we're also referring to a sort of temporal duration, not just a page duration. And obviously those two are correlated, but it's not a perfect match that you can, some books are faster to read than others, even if they're longer. Yeah, it's a good point. A book that's a more compelling read where you want to find out what happened, who did it. And the style as well, if you know, the sentence structure can make, you know, 400 words is different depending on which pen has written <laughs> it. Definitely true. Although, okay, so the, the longest book of late that I have attempted, 480 pages, is one that was recommended to me by two different people, both of whom have... Well, they're both pretty good readers. Mm, okay. Not welcome on this podcast, then. <laughs> Not welcome on this podcast. They're both pretty um, prolific readers. 
one um a friend from uni who's just always been a very fast reader and just always read a lot and then the other is my partner's mum who's retired and is in a book club and has a bit more time to read and they both recommended the same book to me it's been on bestseller lists very kind of easy reading and yet it just uh, it just couldn't and i felt extra guilty about this one because i had to dissemble or let down <laughs> two people who both knew that i was reading it because i made the mistake of borrowing a copy from one of them and then telling them both that i was reading it so there's no <laughs> way out of that then no way out and if it had been shorter i would have just pressed on so that i could be like oh yeah yeah, that was good. Thanks for the recommendation. But instead, I was like, ah, there's another 100 pages and I'm not feeling it. I'm not going to mention it because it is, uh, it's, it's, a, yeah, it's a fine book. It just wasn't what I was in the mood for. That's the thing we come back to a lot, isn't it? That the book has to arrive at your feet, your bookshelf, at the time that you're ready for it. Exactly. And what I want are people plotting murders in really silly, drawn out <laughs> ways in decagonal buildings and <laughs> people time traveling over the course of time it takes for a cup of coffee to get cold. It sounds like you're reading when more of a pattern that I often read of getting hooked on something and then just trying to seek out more and more and more of the same thing. Yeah, well, it was a combination of going, oh, actually crime um, or this particular kind of crime is a genre that I enjoy. It was partially that and it was partially also that I was looking at the list of Pushkin Press, which are a really nice indie publisher. I think Vertigo is the name of their crime list. But they've got like gorgeous covers on all of their books and they do a lot of short books. <laughs> and that's what great. drew you to them. <laughs> a wonderful publisher for good. Like, no, it wasn't just that, um, but they also do a great line in translated fiction and in bringing back books that have been out of print for a long time, kind of giving a second life to books that we ought to be paying attention to. It's not exclusively what they do, but I think that's a really lovely ethos. I think I remember you saying to me a while back, the prize-winning books were getting longer. Yes, this was like around 2015, I think people had noticed that the short lists of prize books had grown like 25% in a decade. It was something like that. This feels interesting to me because I feel like, while that may be a localised anomaly, I feel generally books are actually getting shorter over time. Like a lot of those very long books that we were describing there, the Dickens and Samuel Richardson, these are books from the 18th century, some in the 19th century. Whereas you don't often see books like super long books now if you do it's odd like you know we, some of these are noteworthy books because they're so long yeah but i guess there's we've spoken about philip roth before and about jonathan franzen but if you think of some of their books they're pretty chunky and if you think of luminaries another that was on the man booker was it a man booker winner um or it was on the short list at least and I think that if you are trying to establish yourself as like a literary voice, there at least was, maybe it's changing a bit in recent years, but there really was this sense of like, look, here's my big book. Like I am worth taking that much of your time. Gosh, it's, it's like a, a sort of aggressive statement of this book is an <laughs> undertaking. Yeah, exactly. It's an undertaking and like it will... It almost like it bestows upon you, the reader, like this extra kudos or part of a club because you're willing. Uh, this sounds more critical than I mean it to. But no, but I think this is a, a key thing that I feel like we come back to quite a lot here, actually, is reading is something that we do for joy and for pleasure. And it's stimulation. It's a personal act that we do for ourselves. And yet so much of reading culture involves asserting something onto you. These books are good because they're hard to read, and um, whether that's hard because the sentences are constructed strangely or because it does something weird or because the references are obscure or even just because it's very, very big. It feels like such a strange thing to me to do, to somehow try and make reading inaccessible for people that actually want to access it. There was, uh, I don't know if it was a recent discussion of... Uh, 
Judith Butler's works and this idea of thinkers who mm, deliberately, perhaps, obscure, obfuscate, <laughs> make it hard to gain entry to, and you know, whether or not that is deliberate in her case, and also she's an academic writing a very different kind of book from the things that we're talking about. But there is in the culture that this element of status, you know, whether it's like you can understand the illusions because you've had the correct, quote unquote, like classical education. And so you get the sense of, yes, I've got it. And I also belong to this elite group of readers who can get it. I guess a lot of the culture and the status is on this kind of sense of where we belong in relation to the author, like how we as readers match up to the author and what they're trying to do, or how we match up to each other. Yeah, there's a real thing there, isn't it, about your books you're reading being linked to your identity. Once your books become your identity, you then want to exclude some people from having that identity as well. Yeah, and you also want want your identity to show that you're a serious person who, like the long books themselves, are worth the space that they take up. I hadn't really thought until you said it then before of, I don't want to say the arrogance of writing a long book, but it's certainly the the forcing yourself into taking someone else's time. The more you unpack it and think about it, the more kind of aggressive act it is, because it's a bit morbid thought really, but there are only a finite number of books that we can read in our lives. And if you write a long book, you are essentially saying, well, I'm going to force some people, or I think I can force some people with my power, to read this one at the expense of other books. That finite list of books they're going to read is going to contain mine, and that will push other people out of it. So any book you read pushes other books out of the list. But you're taking more than your fair share of someone's <laughs> list. <laughs> yeah, I wonder what we would determine is the fair share of a book. How much space you're allowed to take up. 70,000 words is a fair share. <laughs> 250 pages. That's a fair share. I think it's something that uh, some writers at least are definitely more cognizant of. I'm working with a guy at the moment who's written a very short book. It's very informative and he's very deliberately brilliantly paired back his message. But he even says in the book, like, I don't want to keep you too long. You know, and he recognises that readers have other demands on their time, but also that, that the other people writing in the same area as him have things that are worth saying and that readers should be reading as well. There's a nice act of kind of wanting to take up no more time than he really needs to so that you can spend it with those other writers and, and on your life. And I, yeah, I massively admire that. So I've been talking about stats a lot, but you're the one with the Kindle and the one who drops his books into Word to count word lengths. So come on, hit me. You must have some good short and long stats. Well, I've, I've noticed that I've definitely been trending down. So the, the average length of the books that I read is going down. And I think part of that is that I've become more conscious of the length of them on Kindle. I don't know if it's a Kindle update happens a little while ago, it makes it clearer, the length of books, and so I can see them more clearly. It doesn't yet have my dreamed for feature of being able to sort by <laughs> length of book. <laughs> but Goodreads, uh, which I use, tells me the number of pages I read every year. In 2019, I read 55 books. And in 2018, I read 46 books. So I read 10 more books that year. But the number of pages I read in those two years was 12,355 and 12,187. So they were about the same length of pages each year, even though the number of books changed massively. And in fact, if I look through these stats year on year, um, I had a particularly big year of reading last year, which was partly because of lockdown and partly because I went through a phase, I think, of just being a bit weirdly bored of TV. I got into a, a happy spot with reading. I suddenly found lots of writers that I liked all at once and I was on a roll. It's definitely, you know, I'd love to say, ah, oh, you know, lockdown, time at home. I fell back in love with the written word, but it wasn't. It was I found a load of books I really liked. Um, so I had, a, I had a particularly good year last year. I read 16,000 pages. Back in 2015, when I read 40 books, so that's less than 2018 or 2019. The actual number of pages I read was still about the same again. It was still about 12, 
thousand pages. So it seems like I have a fairly standard number of pages I read each year, but the number of books changes and the number of books has been going up while the number of pages has stayed the same. So I think I've been hunting out shorter books. So you definitely have this trend towards shorter books, but it doesn't mean that you've been wanting that because you've been reading less. Your reading habit hasn't changed or reading appetite hasn't changed, just how it's fit in. Yeah, and actually I suspect that on the years when I've read fewer pages, part of that has been that they've been longer books and I've found myself getting slower and slower and slower through these long books that feel like they're never going to end. There's a sort of energy when you open a new book and you're at the beginning and all the as the pages stretch on ahead of you, all the possibilities are there, <laughs> aren't they? It's a lovely feeling. And it's a lovely feeling too when you get to the end of a book and and it's short enough that you think, oh, like you feel arrested in the middle of something and you go back into the book, which I do sometimes very occasionally do. And I just like try and find passages I remember liking or like reread a moment that was enjoyable or when you finish a comic and I maybe even go back through the whole thing and I admire the artwork or I take in a slightly different aspect. That's a lovely, yeah, two wonderful moments, that sense of possibility. And then that sense of like the sun is setting, you know, you need to go home, but you're just going to like try and eke out the moments of it before you have to. Well, there's something nice about that because once you've read the book as well and you've enjoyed it that much, and it's very rare I'll do this, but if you go back again, it's purely for your pleasure. You know what's going to happen. You know what all the ideas are. Mm. You know how it's expressed, but you can go back and enjoy them again a little bit. And that's much easier in a shorter book, actually. Easier to find the moment, if nothing else. Well, our podcasts like books uh, is shorter, better when <laughs> yeah. it comes to podcasts. I was going to say, we should like 20 minute podcast this episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we've done that. <laughs> we hope that we have left you wanting more. <laughs> Shouldn't say that. <laughs> in case we haven't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to go back now to brilliant, 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 and see whether I'll discover why it's called that. I hope it's not just that he thinks he is, because that's very arrogant. I don't think that's the case. <laughs> I'm sure it's sarcastic. <laughs> well, I'm going to go back, potentially have a little dip back into my In the Garden. As ever, there are episode notes for this on our website, which I don't think we've really said before, but the episode notes are incredibly thorough. <laughs> They contain every book and every mistake we've made in laborious detail. So if that's your thing, definitely check them out. Yeah, if you want to know all of the actual titles for the books that we've talked about, um, I can't promise that we're going to have book page and word lengths for all of the books we've talked about, but you never know. <laughs> very much for joining us this episode we've really been enjoying it so far and hope that you have too if you have please reach out to us on twitter at beverly's podcast or through many channels you can find on our website beverly's we would love to hear from you